the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. I'm your host, Nate Elliott, as we join senior pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Exodus. God had liberated the Israelites from their enslavement in Egypt, bringing them through the desert wilderness out to Mount Sinai. God had revealed attributes of His holiness and goodness to the Israelites through the giving of His moral law. He gave the civil law by which they were to abide by. Now God will give them the ceremonial law, instructions on how to worship Him. We looked at different offerings and the Ark of the Covenant. We will continue with the significance of the showbread in Exodus chapter 25, verse 23. In addition to that, they would have the showbread. Now what's that? The word showbread means bread that is set before God's presence. Leviticus chapter 24 explains a little bit more. So turn there with me if you don't mind. Leviticus 24 verses 5 through 9. And it talks about baking the showbread. It says, you shall take fine flour, bake 12 cakes thereof. Two tenth deals shall be in one cake. So just telling you how much to mix. And you shall set them in two rows or two stacks. Six on one side upon the pure table before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense upon each stack, that it may be on the bread for memorial, even an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Every Sabbath shall he set it in order before the Lord continually every week, being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. And then at the end of that week, it says it shall be Aaron's and his sons, and they shall eat it right there in the holy place. For it is most holy unto him of the offerings of the Lord made by fire by a perpetual or continual statute. So the 12 loaves that are baked are obviously representing the 12 tribes of Israel, all God's people. And they would serve, Leviticus says, as two things, an offering and a reminder, an offering and a memorial. So just as the manna that God rained from heaven every day reminded them that God was their physical provider, the showbread reminded them that God was their spiritual provider too, that they could not find spiritual life outside of him. Now, as God would prosper the nation materially, bringing them into the land, one of the dangers they'd face and one of the dangers we face when God prospers us materially is forgetting our relationship with God. And so the bread set before God's presence each week was a recognition by the nation that this was their most important need as a people, their relationship with God. As the priests ate that bread each Sabbath, it symbolized the nation renewing their fellowship with God, being reminded of their need and offering their lives back to God, saying, Lord, we need you. You are the only basis of our spiritual health. So how does the table and its bread point to Jesus? Well, John 6, verse 35. And you probably know where I'm going with this. And Jesus said unto them, I am the what? The bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger, and he that believes on me shall never thirst. You know, while the priest would eat the bread, the rest of Israel would never even experience the satisfaction of fellowshipping with God in the holy place. But we can through Jesus. He's the bread that fully satisfies both God and man. See, Jesus is the place where God's wrath for sin is satisfied forever. 
Like the incense going up and a sweet smell before God, Jesus' sacrifice was accepted by God. And just as there were 12 loaves representing the entirety of Israel, so Jesus' one death is for all of mankind. All may have a relationship with God through him. While the priests only ate that bread on the Sabbath, we rest in the finished work of Christ every day, right? Not just on one day of the week. We don't need to worry that God will forsake us or that we have to appease God with something else by doing some ritual. Look at Hebrews chapter 10 with me. The book of Hebrews is actually the correlation to Exodus and Leviticus because it shows how Jesus is the substance of the shadow, how he's better. But in Hebrews 10, 19, it says this, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest. So the holiest, we go into the holy of holies, not the the holy place like the priest did to eat the bread. We go into the holy of holies by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he has consecrated for us. We go right through the veil, that is to say, through his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith because we've had our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So let's come. Let's dine with the Lord regularly in his word. Let's dine with him as he satisfies us. Let's be fully satisfied in him and stop looking for it in other things. When we worship God, part of our worship should always be feasting on his word. Just like Mary when she sat at Jesus' feet. Because knowing him better is one of our primary goals. It's an opportunity to lay our material cares at his feet in recognition that our spiritual cares are of far greater import. One last job, the table really only had one job, and it was to display the bread. That was its only job. And there's a sense where we are like that table. Our job is to display the satisfaction of Christ we've found so that others will enter in and take a bite as well. Well, the next thing that we see back in Exodus chapter 25 is the golden, King James says candlestick, but they did not make candles at this time. So it would have been a lampstand is what the word means. And you shall make a lampstand of pure gold, of beaten work shall the candlestick be made. In other words, hammered work. It would be from one large chunk of gold. In fact, the estimation is that this golden lampstand weighed about 125 pounds. If you look at the Roman arch, when you go visit there, you actually see a picture of this. So we know that when Titus and the Roman armies came and conquered Jerusalem, they took this. They took this from the temple that Jesus was in and they brought it to Rome. Now, at some point in time, it ended up in the Tiber River and it's lost to us now, but they had a picture of it on the arch. It mentions here that it was to be of one piece, I already said, It mentions his shaft, his branches, his verse 31, his bowls, his knops, his flowers. They shall be of the same piece of gold. So he's going to have to beat it into this shape. And it mentions that six branches shall come out the side. So you have the center shaft and then three branches come from each side. That's where the six come from. Three branches of the candlestick out of one side, three branches of the candlestick out of the other side. Three bowls made like unto almonds. The word uh, bowls, this is actually the design is similar to an almond tree. It was the first uh, spring tree in the Near East. When spring came around, this is the one that would blossom first. And the buds were a radiant white and they formed the shape of a cup. So when you look at the, the flowers that are, as you go up each shaft, that's what those are representing, the almond bud, the almond flower opening up. And at the very top, you have where they put the oil and the wick and stuff. And that's the idea of a fully opened flower the idea of an almond tree budding. That's what the word bowl here refers to. It refers to the flower in its its state where it's, it's open a little bit. The knobs refers to the knobby little endings on the bottom of each flower, okay? And then the flowers would be the open blossoms with a lamp at the top where the lamp, the oil, and the wick were placed to provide light. So 
Three bowls made like unto almonds, with a knop and a flower in each branch. And three bowls made like almonds in the other branch, with a knop and a flower. So in the six branches that come out of the candlestick. But in the candlestick, in other words, the center shaft, there shall be four bowls or four flowers made like unto almonds with their knops and their flowers. And there shall be a knop under two branches of the same and a knop under two branches of the same and a knop under two branches of the same according to the six branches that proceed out of the candlestick. Their knops and their branches shall be of the same. It shall be one beaten work of pure gold. And you shall make the seven lamps thereof and they shall light the lamps thereof, that they may give light over against it. Here we find the purpose of the lampstand. It was to provide light. In fact, it was the only light source in the holy place. Now, as we read on here, it mentions that the tongs thereof and the snuff dishes, verse 38, they shall be of pure gold. Of a talent of pure gold shall he make it with all these vessels. And look that you make them after their pattern which was showed you in the mount. Don't deviate at all. Here we find no mention of the oil. The reason is because that will come at the end of chapter 27. So we'll get to that later. So what was the lampstand there for? Well, it served to remind Israel that God was their light. That before him, they were in a very dark place in Egypt. And without him, they'd return to a very dark place. But it also reminded them that they were to be his lights. That they were his special people. Different from anyone else in the world. And therefore, they were to live differently than anyone else in the world. They were to be a light to the world, declaring the greatness of their God by their conduct. And you know, Solomon understood this principle because when he built the temple and he asked God to bless it, he prayed a very interesting prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 41. Now, Solomon's prayed a lot of other things, but he drops this in here kind of out of nowhere. He says, moreover, verse 41 of 1 Kings chapter 8, referring to praying about the temple when he's dedicating it, moreover, concerning a stranger that is not of your people, Israel, but comes out of a far country for your namesake, For they shall hear of your great name and of your strong hand and of your stretched out arm. And when he shall come and pray toward this house, hear thou in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all the stranger calls to you for, that all the people of the earth may know your name to fear you as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house which I have builded is called by your name. So Israel was to daily present themselves to the Lord that he might shine his light through them to a dark and a lost world. God's intention from the beginning wasn't that they would be distinct and separate just so they could look and say, we're God's people too bad for you, stinks to be you. Noah, so they could tell people about their great God and that they would come to faith in the Lord as well. Now, Israel, of course, did not do that job. They became very xenophobic in their viewpoint towards everybody else. They became very anti towards any other people group but themselves. And the Lord was very upset about that on many occasions. How does the lampstand point to Jesus? Well, similarly to how Jesus said, I'm the bread of life, in John 8, 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. In John 8, 12, he, speaking to the group of people that were there that, you know, they wanted him to stone the lady caught in adultery, Jesus has these words. He says, and I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. You know, without him, we are in darkness. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 says he has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, right? That's what we were in darkness, but he's called us into light. And so in light of this, we ought no longer to live our lives in dark things, but to live like Jesus so we can be a light to the world as well. Look at Ephesians chapter 5 with me. 
Paul latches onto this thought that would be very clear to the Jewish mind. Those Jewish Christians who were listening would understand exactly what he was talking about, that he was referencing what the lampstand stood for. In Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, Paul says to the Ephesians, Be you therefore followers of God as dear children, imitators of God, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. But fornication and uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather a giving of thanks. For this you know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things, of all the dark things I've mentioned here, because of these things there comes the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. The lost, those are not saved. So therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were sometimes darkness, but now are you light in the Lord. Walk or conduct yourself as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable or pleasing to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. That's what reprove them means. For it is a shame to even speak of those things which are done in secret. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus told us, you are the light of the world, right? And do you recall what instrument or object he used to illustrate that? A candlestick, a lampstand. He was referencing right back to that golden lampstand back in the tabernacle. And he says, that's you. You are a light to the world. Let your light so shine before men that they can see your good works and they might glorify your Father, which is in heaven. See, when we worship God, there should be a time of forsaking of those dark things and a surrender of our lives to walk in the light as he is in the light. It implies a confession of sin and a heart of repentance. So our worship time should consist of that. Back in Exodus, we make it to chapter 26. Now next we find the curtains that were the roof of the tabernacle. Could you put up slide number two? This one shows a little bit more of a 3D version. There's a little cutout there in the building, but that's what the roof looked like. You can notice it has four different colors up there. The reason is, is because it actually had four layers that made up the roof. Now it mentions the first layer here in verse one. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with 10 curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet. With cherubims of cunning work shall you make them. The length of one curtain shall be eight and twenty cubits, and the breadth of one curtain four cubits, and every one of the curtains shall have one measure. The five curtains shall be coupled together one to another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled one to another. And you shall make loops of blue upon the edge of the one curtain from the selvage in the coupling, and likewise shall you make in the uttermost edge of another curtain in the coupling of the second. Fifty loops shall you make in the one curtain, and fifty loops shall you make in the edge of the curtain that is in the coupling of the second, that the loops may take hold one of another. And you shall make fifty tachets of gold, and couple the curtains together with the tachets, and it shall be one tabernacle, it says, but here actually the word means tent. So it wasn't actually a building in the same way we would look at it. It was more like a tent. Here we find out, it says, you shall make you the tabernacle with 10 curtains of fine twine linen. You make it with of cunning work, which means a skilled craftsman. So what, when they're going to make these curtains, they're going to actually sew into it all sorts of majestic artistry, including little cherubims in there or pictures of angels. So no stick figures, okay? Not all of us would have qualified for this job. Only those who had the artistic skill to make it look nice. 
Now, each curtain was 42 feet long and six feet wide, and there were 10 of those. They would be sewn together in two sets of five. And then those two sets of five that had been sewn together, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, on the edge, that's what the word salvage means, the outer fringe or the edge, they would make these loops. And then they would put them together with these golden clasps. And that's how the whole tent would then fall down like that. Okay? That's how they would do it. Now, when inside the holy place, the priest would see the white linen, which is a bright white fabric with images of cherubim sewn into it, and then beautiful colors of yarn woven all throughout it. It would give the picture that you were in God's throne room in heaven with all the majestic color, and now kind of like the rainbow that we see in Revelation chapter 4 when John gets a vision of God's throne. So it's like the rainbow, and then you see the angels all flying around, even though they're not moving because they're drawn in there. It would give you the distinct impression that you were in God's throne room. And this would remind the priests that their service to God was to be performed with humility and submission, and that Israel's worship should always express the same attitude. Well, how does this point to Jesus? It's just a curtain or a roof. Well, interestingly enough, Revelation 15, 6, and Revelation 19, 14, you can look it up in your own time, they associate fine linen with purity. For example, Revelation 19, 14 talks about the fine linen that clothed the saints, which is the righteousness of the saints. It's the purity of the saints. Now, Jesus was a pure lamb of God who knew no sin, but he became sin for us. This may explain the weaving of the blue, the purple, and the red yarn into the linen. Blue makes us think of the sky, of course. It's one of the first things you think of when you think of the color blue. Blue is a frequent symbol for heaven. We saw that in chapter 24 when it mentioned the blue underneath the feet of God. We talked about how that was a representative of heaven. Okay? Red is a frequent symbol of earth. In fact, Adam's name means red dirt. That's why when we think of what Adam was made of, it probably is not dirt or soil in the way we think of it. It was probably like clay, like red clay. That's what, I know that's not flattering, but that's what we're made of. Now, if you put the middle color there is purple, which is the mixture of red and blue, right? So purple is a mixture of heaven and earth. Perhaps the curtain points to the incarnation. For Jesus said, there is no man who has ascended to the Father except he which came down from the Father. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. Whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So perhaps the curtain speaks to the fact that God became man to die for our sins. You know, when we worship God, this curtain speaks to excellence in craft as well as humility in service. We should always give God our very best. No stick figures, okay? My kids ask me to draw, and I draw stick figures because I'm no artist, okay? But when I give the Lord my best, it's not going to be a stick figure. There's times also I draw a stick figure because I just won't be bothered with the time. And we, God wants us to give, us, give him our very best. But our service to him should never be done with a big head or to draw attention to ourselves. We're in the presence of God Almighty, not because we're in the holy place, but we're in his presence at all times, and we shouldn't need a curtain to remind us of that. Now the next layer, verse 7, the next layer for the roof, it was of goat's hair. And you shall make curtains of goat's hair to be a covering upon the tabernacle. Eleven curtains shall you make. So this one will be a little bit bigger. The length of one curtain shall be 30 cubits. The breadth of one curtain shall be four cubits. So it's the same width, but their length is actually three feet longer. It's 45 feet long. And then it mentions that an 11th curtain was added to cover the rear wall of the tabernacle. Verse eight, 
The length of one curtain shall be 30 cubits, the breadth of one curtain four cubits, and the 11 curtains shall all be of one measure. You shall couple five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves, and you shall double the sixth curtain in the forefront of the tabernacle. And you shall make 50 loops on the edge of the one curtain, that is outmost in the coupling, and 50 loops in the edge of the curtain, which couples the second. And you shall make 50 tachets of brass and put the tachets into the loops and couple the tent together that it may be one. And the remnant of that remains of the curtains, the part that's left over that's too much, he says, of the tent, he says, the half curtain that remains shall hang over the back side of the tabernacle, and then the other half will cover the front. And a cubit on the one side, and a cubit on the other side of that which remains in the length of the curtains of the tent, it shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and on that side, cover it. So this would be what the people on the outside of the tabernacle would see. Black with no artistry whatsoever. Nothing drawn in it, no artistry, just plain black, coarse goat hair roof. Goats are usually set in the scripture in contrast to sheep. Sheep being God's followers and goats being those who rebel. If you like goats, I'm sorry, that's just how the Bible does it. Now, while the priest ministered in the remainder of, a reminder of God's presence, the people saw the hard reality that sin separates us from God's presence. And it was only through the sin offerings that anyone could enter God's presence and Israel could find forgiveness. How does this point to Jesus? Well, he is our sin offering. The Bible says in Isaiah 53 that he was bruised for what? Our transgressions. He was wounded for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was laid upon him. And the Bible says that he was punished with transgressors. He was counted as a a lawbreaker for us. He is our sin offering. God made his soul, the Bible says in Isaiah 53, an offering for sin. Well, the next two layers we find, they have a different purpose. Verse 14. And you shall make a covering for the tent of ram skins dyed red and a covering above of badger skins. So the third layer would be the ram skins dyed red. Now, the word covering here is a different word. It means a protective tent cover. So this was more of a practical purpose than a color purpose. And yet, dyeing it red would be something you would have to do. This would be thicker, and it would provide a solid roof for the tabernacle, keeping it airtight and safe from the elements. The fourth layer would be of the badger skin, or the seal, the leather of the seal cow. Like I said, this was probably sea lion hides, a hardy material used for sandals that would waterproof the tabernacle as well. These two layers would hide some of the black, and they would replace it with red. That's why when you look up the picture there, you see the layers. It kind of shows you what they would You'd see a little bit. You'd see a little bit of the blue if you're in. You'd see the blue if you're inside. You'd see the white, you know, if you're inside. Then you'd see the red and the black. It doesn't show black for some reason. You'd see that if outside, and then the brown would be more of the seal skin that you would see as well. But these two layers, like I said, they had a practical purpose. But you would see some of the black, though, replaced with the red. And that would remind Israel that the blood of the sacrifice was what covered their sin. They could approach a holy God on that basis, that the offering had covered their sin. Now, in the New Testament, our sin is not covered. I'm really prickly about when I hear Christians say that, how Christ covers our sin. That's what the Old Testament is all about. The New Testament, Christ does not cover our sin. What does Christ do with our sin? He washes it. It's not that it's just covered up so God can't see it, but it's still there. No, he washes us completely clean so that it's not there anymore. Now, the sea lion layer would also cover up some of the red. And thus, it would remind Israel that nothing but the blood, not even their hardiest deeds or any religious activity, could make them right with God. So how does this point to Jesus? We'll turn to Hebrews chapter 7, and I'll, I love this. 
All four layers, we see them referenced here. Hebrews 7, verses 26 and 27, referring to Jesus. For such a high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. He's that white linen part that we talked about earlier. And made higher than the heavens, who needs not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. See, Jesus is the one who is both our, he's our badger skin. He's the one who protects us. He's our, the ram skin dyed red. He's our sin offering. And therefore we don't see any black, no goat skin because he's the one who's the offering for our sin. Now we stand in the white linen of the righteousness of the saints because we've been washed in the blood of Christ. Amen. And when we worship the Lord, we must remember that it was our sin that put him on the cross. All self-righteousness has to die, all of it. Our worship should always be a time of humbling ourselves before God as we lay aside our dead works and renew all of our hope in the cross. This time, stuff I'm fascinated with. I have so much more I could have said. I find a significance even in the little tiniest of things here. You would be sleeping if I started talking about that. As for me, not for you. And if you want to dig into this more, I want to encourage you. You can find Christ in every page, in every part of the Old Testament worship. It all points forward to him. The book of Colossians is very clear. In Colossians 1, where Paul's saying, let no man therefore judge you in meat or drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or the Sabbath day, any of those Old Testament practices, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. Lord, we thank you that you made it so clear that we look back and we just see so many things that point to you. I imagine there were many folks out here tonight who I didn't mention something. They thought, hey, I think that points to Jesus too. And, and Lord, I think as we read through your word, that's your desire is that we, we get into these parts that maybe are a little bit hard to digest as we're just casually reading, that your desire is we dig a little bit deeper and say, how does it point to Jesus? And then we see how you foretold from the very beginning, you're preparing your people for the coming of Messiah. And Lord, the truth is they missed that when he came for the most part. They didn't understand. They did not know the time of their visitation. Lord, you're coming back again as well. And we don't want to not know the time of our visitation, Lord. We believe that the, high t- the time is near, and we, so we don't want to walk in those unfruitful things of darkness. We want to walk as children of light. And so we give our lives to you now to be children of light. Fill us with your spirit so we can live it out every day. And we ask it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. The tabernacle and all the beautiful objects in it are just a shadow of the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is where we find mercy before God. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus is the bread of life. He is the tabernacle of God, which is now open to us. He is all we need and the only way to get to God. When we come to Jesus, we find all we need. While we are in this time of a global pandemic, do not be afraid to call and ask for assistance or for prayer. Our office may be closed, but you can still reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.